Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing quite well. So, uh, Jasmine, today on the show, we have Chris Hartman, who is the chair of Kentucky Fairness, which is the largest LGBTQ advocacy organization in the state of Kentucky. He talked to us as a bit of an update to the last time we talked to him, which was two prides ago. It's mm-hmm. Pride 2021. So we talked to him a little bit about how the, the movement for fairness and the movement for LGBTQ liberation and equality is moving along here in Kentucky. A lot of good pieces of information there about how you can get involved if you want to advocate for that issue uh, going forward. So that was very cool. Before we get started, we should probably shout out Jackie Joseph, a friend from college who is America's greatest baker. I mean, that's pretty cool to be the best baker in America, I guess. Yeah, she was on the Food Network show, Best Baker in America, and they had bakers from all over the U.S. And Jackie Joseph from Prestonsburg, but lives in Louisville, won the show. Yeah, very cool. Very cool for her. And so this week on the show, in terms of the things we're actually going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about BR60, which is bill request about critical race theory, which is making its way through uh, the Kentucky legislature. It's just a bill request now, obviously, because they're not in session, but but it has been making news. A lot of people have been talking about it. So I want to kind of go over the movement against critical race theory that conservatives have, have uh, started uh, across the country and in Kentucky. Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about Daniel Cameron. We have some uh, a COVID update, and then we have a few local quick hits. So without any further ado, let's talk about BR 60. All right, Jasmine, before, you know, what, like two months ago, had you ever heard of critical race theory? Yeah, I'd heard of it. I think it's something that you learn um, sometimes through trainings in a job like mine or just like as a progressive adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I I didn't know much about it until it like popped up in the news kind of recently. Um, Critical race theory is an academic term for the movement to address the teaching of race and racism in history, basically encouraging that the teaching of racism is is more of like a a social construct and not just the actions of individuals who got the wrong ideas about marginalized people. It's been around for quite a while, uh, but a few, I think, like probably more progressive secondary school districts across the country and higher education institutions were beginning to make changes to their curriculum. Uh, in the way that CRT suggests. And I mean, that seems like a good idea. I I think like learning that racism is just because people, uh, one or two people are bad is not necessarily reflective of reality and being like it comes because people got the wrong idea on a whole social level uh, makes a lot more sense to me, at least. But conservatives have this kind of long history of warping ideas from the left end of the ideological spectrum into like these monstrous things and turning public discourse against them. So, I mean, I there's a couple of really recent examples since we've kind of started the show, like the idea about like abolish ICE or or like even something like Black Lives Matter. Like they seem kind of innocuous and like the movements around them were, uh, you know, something that uh, were a little bit more benign than the conservative critics ended up making them out to be and they, they turned into these like huge debates and even something like black lives matter turns into like this it, that strikes fear into the heart of of all kind of conservatives and and even some liberals that are worried that people are going to get the wrong idea uh and it goes even further back you know you think about things like uh you know gay marriage it's pride month so like that idea is something that like conservatives turned on its head and made into something really awful Another one I remember was like the Affordable Care Act had these ideas that like, you know, um, when certain treatments were were necessary and then Sarah Palin started calling them death panels. 
Uh, so, yeah, there, there's this long history that conservatives have of, like, warping these ideas. And, and that's definitely something that's happening to critical race theory. Uh, across the country, conservatives have been attacking the idea of critical race theory as a, as a radical indoctrination of America's youth by liberals and progressives. Uh, here's just some examples from across the country. In Georgia, the Georgia School Board took a vote condemning any teaching of racism or slavery that said that the uh, ideas are anything but deviations from the country's, quote, authentic founding principles, unquote. So I don't think that they were necessary deviations from, you know, our founding principles because they're in the Constitution. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sla- slavery was allowed in the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, in Texas, a bill has passed uh, has passed a legislature banning, quote, mandatory CRT teaching, unquote. And I saw like a, a video where Governor Greg Abbott of Texas established this thing called the 1836 Project which promotes, uh, quote, patriotic education and ensures future generations understand Texas values, unquote. So um, that kind of is after the uh, 1836, I think, is the founding of Texas. But that, that is obviously a response to the 1619 project, which is definitely includes a lot of critical race theory ideas in it. So that's Texas. Uh, you know, there's other similar measures that have uh, occurred in Idaho. And Florida's governor has demanded that their board of education take up this issue as well. So that's what's going on across the country. Uh, Kentucky's conservative Republicans did not want to be left out. So Representative Joe Fisher, he represents the parts of Campbell County, which are not along the river. Um, so that's going to be like the more conservative parts of Campbell County. He filed Bill Request 60 that attacks the idea of, of critical race theory. So, you know, inside of this bill request, I strongly suggest that if arguments occur about this bill request as they are likely to happen, there will be an element of a did you even read the bill request from from some conservatives? You know how that that is often a tactic that gets deployed by people. And, and the language in the, the bill request is mostly pretty innocuous, but that's only if you don't have the context. Inside the bill request, it says no one should be discriminated against because of their race, sex or religion. Look, several times it says like six or seven times. However, it also says that children should not be taught that, and this is directly from the bill, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously, which that strikes at the heart of critical race theory, which suggests that racism is a social construct and that people can have racist ideas, can can have racist ideologies that, that, that stem from them as a virtue of their upbringing rather than just deviations, uh, bad ideas that, that happen. So that's kind of how this bill request has worked out. When asked, uh, Representative Fisher said that he filed the bill request because of a course at, at Highlands High School about social equity, a concept I suppose he opposes, uh, maybe. Um, I, I think he actually got the idea probably from his conservative friends pushing this movement across the country, though. Um, Highland High School might have had the, this class, but we all kind of know where the idea actually came from. Then four other representatives filed a different bill request, Bill Request 69, which resulted in almost the exact same language from BR 60, including identical language about critical race theory. The chief sponsors of that bill are Matt Bill Request are Matt Lockett of Nicholasville and Jennifer Henson Decker of Wadi, and they were joined by Mark Hart of Falmouth and also Kim Kim King of uh, Harrodsburg. So uh, Lockett and Decker are both in their first terms as representatives, and, and Representative Hart is in his second term. Um, the other representative, Kim King, has been in the legislature for a little bit longer than that. Are 
there any differences about the bill request? There's a few like differences in terms of the way that the bill the the res- bill request resulted in legislation, but I think probably when it comes time to file a bill, it will be the same the same language. Okay. Yeah, I even think like I would say like 95% of it is a, is exactly word for word the same. I think they probably made very similar bill requests like make a ba- make a bill of, uh, against critical race theory is probably the way it, it kind of went. Um, I, I will say that there is a quite a bit of opposition to these bills. Andy Bashir called Bill Request 60, quote, more than a little concerning, unquote. Education Commissioner Jason Glass said that he opposed, quote, politically driven efforts to micromanage our local classroom teachers, unquote. Marty Polio, who is the JCPS superintendent, he, at, he, he asked the question, quote, how can we expect students to succeed if they do not see themselves and their history in the curriculum, unquote. And even Mitch McConnell said that he opposed the government being able, quote, to dictate, in effect, what's taught, unquote. So at the end of the day, I don't really think that this bill is going anywhere in the 2022 session. Joe Fisher is one of the most conservative members of the legislature, and the other bill sponsors are, are really new to the legislature. Many bills like this from, from more conservative members in the Republican caucus and people who are more new often get passed over in the session. Plus, I would say that GOP in Kentucky's legislature has avoided many of the hot-button social issues, especially LGBTQ issues. Uh, Chris Hartman talked a little bit about that in our interview with with them, so you can listen to that. But, you know, I, I will put in an exception to abortion. They talk about abortion multiple times every session, um, so they don't avoid all social issues. However, it's definitely something that we need to keep our eyes on, especially if the movement against CRT scores wins in many other states that could force the GOP leadership's hands. So, Jasmine, what do you think about I mean, I don't I'm not going to ask you what you think about the issue, but uh, what do you think about how the, the discussion of this issue has progressed in the past couple of weeks? Do you think it's gotten enough attention, not enough attention? What, what do you think? I think I've seen quite a bit of attention on Twitter and things like that. I don't know how much attention it's getting in the world and in general, you know, people who aren't as online (laughs) as us, like, do they know what's happening? And I actually had like tweeted about it about a week or two before the Kentucky bill request for one. I think I said something about it after Georgia introduced their version of it. And I mean, it's just like, Another example of supermajority Republican legislators just like doing whatever they want. Yeah. But like you said, we've been able to like stave off some mm. of these things in Kentucky. Um, so I was wondering if one would even get filed and then a week later we, we've got two. Yeah, we've got two. <laughs> I, I think the type of legislators that are actually pushing this legislation, I, I, I would be shocked if we didn't see every kind of major conservative issue that, you know, kind of progresses across the country to come to Kentucky in some form or fashion yeah. now. But I would just encourage everybody to, you know, keep your eye on these things, but pay closer attention, very close attention once the legislature actually goes into session. Because, you know, if you start seeing these things on the calendar, that's when you start to have to start mm-hmm. really worrying. And paying attention to like, what is leadership doing yep. and saying and, and things like that? Yeah. Because these are mostly new, newer legislators. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's kind of the issue is like, you know, they can basically do whatever they want, but we have to make sure our voice gets heard if these things do move forward. So, you know, I, I do hope that the right people get in the rooms as, you know, progressives formulate responses to this. Um, you know, this is, this is an issue about race. Uh, and so, 
I think that the probably the response to it probably needs to be driven by people of color um, and especially black people, especially like descendants of slavery who are, you know, form a lot of the <laughs> uh, the people who are the most impacted mm-hmm. by by this specific uh, issue. So, you know, everybody that I mentioned that responded to this, you know, and just kind of people in power, um, Andy Bashir, Jason Glass. Uh, Marty Polio and and you know even Mitch McConnell, all white guys. So uh, you know I would be interested to hear what what kind of a more diverse group of people have to say about this issue. So hopefully that happens soon. But anyways, that's critical race theory. Jasmine, what do we need to know about Daniel Cameron this week? All right, so we you know on this podcast we've spent a lot of time talking about Daniel Cameron's work, specifically in like criminal cases and abortion lawsuits that those are usually like the two contexts where we're talking about what he's up to at the AG's office. Um, but I did want to note his actions recently in an environmental lawsuit. Um, so the EPA has standards for reducing CO2 emissions and it's called the clean power plan or the CPP. And there have been several legal challenges to the CPP that were basically consolidated a few, several years ago into one case called West Virginia versus EPA and over a hundred different parties have filed petitions challenging it. So this is like states like West Virginia, um, it's industry people. Um, so there have been a lot of legal challenges to the Clean Power Plan. The EPA won at the DC Circuit back in January. Um, but on June 4th, Daniel Cameron filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in this case, and it's about the EPA's authority. He is arguing, along with others like West Virginia, um, that the EPA lacked the authority to mandate the CPP standards and that Congress should be the ones making these decisions. Um, but in, in his press release, he pitches it as like he's talking about the EPA's harm to the coal industry. Right. Um, and so, you know, th- that's kind of what is interesting about it, I guess. I think even people you know, in Eastern Kentucky, like know that coal isn't coming back. Yeah. Um, and, and he's still like pitching this to them. Like I'm doing this because of the harm they do to the coal industry. Um, so here's an example of what the AG's office is doing on other issues outside of, you know, prosecuting criminal cases and, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, coal, the coal industry in Kentucky has definitely taken a huge slide um, but I do think that there are definitely still uh, profitable coal mines in eastern Kentucky, and a lot of those people give money to Republican candidates. So not too surprising that Daniel Cameron is is making this stance, especially since it's been really core to Republicans in Kentucky for two or three decades. Democrats too. It's not no 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 reason to avoid that. But yeah, it's definitely different now than it was even five or six years ago. So yeah, yeah. And this case was like kind of on hold for a long time because. Um, the Trump administration had basically like put the CPP on hold. Right. Um, and so this is the ruling from the DC circuit came in January, like right around the time that Biden was inaugurated. And so I think, you know, Daniel Cameron and maybe other Republicans now, um, they're worried that these standards are going to go into effect to reduce CO2 emissions by 2030. And so he's filed a friend of the court brief. Gotcha. Yeah, do you call it you call it amicus? I usually call it amicus. I've heard some people call it amicus. I don't know if that that's is that wrong or another way to say it. A lot of people say a lot of different Latin phrases differently. All right. Vordir, vordar. 
voir dire. That's how, I, that's how I usually say it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, though, so I, I just kind of say words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Other things about Daniel Cameron. All right. So um, Cameron is also arguing in favor of mandatory fees for people seeking to have their records expunged. Um, so after the General Assembly passed a Class D felony expungement bill several years ago, there has been litigation about the expungement fees and whether they can be waived for indigent people. The Jefferson Circuit Court ruled that the fee cannot be waived, um, and now the Kentucky Supreme Court is going to hear the appeal. Um, the Court of Appeals agreed with the Jefferson Circuit Court, and Daniel Cameron's office will be arguing to the Supreme Court that the fees should be mandatory and cannot be waived. Their argument is basically that expungement is a privilege, so there must be a fee for it. That's a policy argument. They're also making, you know, the legal argument that a fee waiver isn't in the statutes, basically. Mm -hmm. So the argument is whether the informa pauperis statute applies to expungement. Robert, do you know what informa pauperis means? In the form of paper. No. Oh, okay. What is it then? In the manner of a pauper. In the manner of a pauper? So like as a poor person? Yeah. Okay. So what the informal pauper statute does is it waives fees for um, initiating actions and appeals. Okay. And so every time I'm filing an appeal, you know, people don't pay me. I'm, fil- I'm filing appeals for indigent people. Um, they are proceeding in form of pauperous. And there is a motion that I file asking a judge to let my client proceed in form of pauperous because they don't have money to pay the fees. Okay. And so the appellants in this case, it's someone who was trying to have their old class D felony expunged. Judge, will you waive this fee? So they are arguing that the informal pauperous statute should apply to expungement, that expungement constitutes an action and they should be eligible for a fee waiver. And the AG's office is saying, no, you know, we passed this expungement legislation and there's no statute for a fee waiver. This is a privilege. It's not an action. Okay. Yeah. The legal argument, notwithstanding, there's, you know, interesting case to be made, I suppose. But from a policy standpoint, this is a travesty, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, so most of the arguments in this case are based on state law, Kentucky statutes, but, you know, there, there's also um, a constitutional argument that I think the appellants are making because the ability for people to have their record expunged, poor people can't do it, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they can't afford the fee and they can't have their rights restored. So, you know, there are constitutional implications, and I think that's an argument that's going to be made, but... I don't know if it will be successful. Yeah, I mean, voting rights is definitely the the way in which I think about this the most often. But I mean, also just like applying for jobs or just like doing all kinds of other things where if you have some sort of, you know, felony that's on your record and hasn't been expunged really hinders your ability to become a, you know, a full member of society mm-hmm. or even to regain your citizenship. So, you know, um, getting rid of that is, I mean, that's why we passed the law in the first place is to give people an opportunity to, you know, get their lives back. Um, and we need to try to do as much as we can to get that into the hands of as many people as we possibly can. And by creating this fee, you know, it, it just stops that from happening. So real messed up, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. And 
I also wanted to note that when um, Andy Bashir's attorney general office had the case, they didn't take a stance on the fee waiver. Yeah. Um, so now that Daniel Cameron is in charge of the attorney general's office, they have decided to take a position, and that position is the fee is mandatory. Yeah. This is a privilege. Um, and, of course, you know, when we're talking about these things and I say Daniel Cameron's doing this, Daniel Cameron's doing that, um, he didn't write the Right. You know, an assistant attorney general in his office did that. But a lot of these things are like policy stances that he's he's taking and, and directing people. Yeah. He's yeah, he's making the policy stance and other people are, are writing the briefs and doing the actual legal arguing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this case, I argue against AGs in all of my cases as well. And they they very rarely just conceded and agreed with me so you know that's what their job is to oppose whatever the accused right right is arguing. yeah that is it yeah that makes that yeah that that is how that works all right jasmine let's do a quick COVID update um and i say quick because it's kind of hard to say this week how cases have moved because there was a data issue over the weekend um so basically it said there were no cases on sunday and then 36 cases on monday and then almost 700 on tuesday so it, I have no idea how things are going. Um, seems like they could be worse, but they might be better. I don't know. Uh, so it's kind of tough to parse out. But I do know that based on the map that we've seen on the KY COVID site, that there's one red county, Webster County in Western Kentucky, and only eight orange counties, plus 10 green counties. So there are now, as of this week, more green counties than we have red and orange combined. So that's good. Yeah, that seems good. That seems good. Um, Louisville had fewer than 200 cases last week. They had 191, which is the first time with fewer than 200 cases since April 2020, which as well is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, I can't t- I can't say whether the data issue that affected the state's ability to report on this also impacted Louisville. Um, but yeah, based on the, num- the numbers that were released by the city, 191. Lexington had fewer than 100 cases. That's very, very low. Uh, but the same caveats kind of apply there. Kentucky is nearing 2.1 million people who've been vaccinated, uh, but rates do remain flat or declining. You know, we are slowly progressing up the scale and more and more people are getting vaccinated. But, you know, I feel I feel like we got to it was slow to get to 1 million because, you know, of access issues very, very fast to get from like 1 million to like 1.7 million Mm -hmm. uh, because that was like huge pent up demand. And then very slow going from like 1.7 million up to 2.1 million as basically demand totally dried up. So one thing I have noticed as I've been looking at all this vaccination information is that the county with the lowest vaccination rate is Christian County. Uh, there's a vaccine dashboard now and you can kind of see what's going on. And, and you know, the Hopkinsville uh, and the Christian County Health Department works really hard to, to make sure that everybody has access to the vaccine um, but one thing that's unique about Christian County is that it has a higher percentage of black residents than Fayette County. Uh, and in addition, um, when looking at Louisville zip code level analysis that's provided by the Jefferson County Health Department, it's really clear that the west end of Louisville is the part of town with the lowest rate of vaccinations. So, you know, the governor does talk every week about vaccine equity and making sure that there's equitable access to the vaccine uh, for different races and different other sorts of uh, ethnicity and, and age and sex and all kinds of different sorts of things. Uh, and, and he does, he has reported on this and, and put, pro, uh, you know, things in place to try to make sure that there is, you know, equitable distribution of the vaccine. But when we're talking about hesitancy among 
uh, people wanting to take the vaccine. It's worth noting that like rural and urban black folks in, in Kentucky seem to have hesitancy to get the vaccine at a very high rate uh, in the same kind of way that we've talked about like conservatives and rural conservatives being hesitant to get the vaccine. Uh, those groups, you know, there's overlap for sure. There's conservative black people. But uh, I mean, as we think about hesitancy, that's definitely something to point out that our efforts to get the vaccine to people have certainly left um, people in the West End of Louisville and in Christian County uh, from getting the vaccine. So that's that's just something to be chewing on a little bit as we move forward here. And hopefully that's something that we'll, we'll figure out a way um, to, to deal with because the vaccines save lives and we want to get as many people as possible to get them. Last thing is that Kentucky is getting in on the vaccine lottery game with a game called Shot at a Million. Jasmine, have you put in for your Shot at a Million? Yeah. Yeah. Me, me too. I'm trying to get Kelsey to do it too. I I think she has to find her card because she has to, I don't know what information you have to provide. I think it was just the name of the pharmacy. Um, so anyways, uh, three people who have been vaccinated will win $1 million. And uh, there's a separate category for teens, 12 to 17, who get vaccinated. They will get one of 15 full-ride scholarships to a Kentucky college, university, or trade school. So this is kind of a thing that's happened across the country. It has also come to Kentucky, and, and there you go. Um, like I said, pretty short uh, COVID update because, uh, you know, Andy Bashir is also ending his weekly COVID updates. I think this Friday will be his last one ever. So we'll have to get our information from other places about COVID. But it does seem like things are getting better. Um, we're recording this week in person without masks because we're both vaccinated and the CD says you can do that now. So very cool. Nice to see you, Jasmine. Uh, <laughs> uh, ah, all right. So that is the COVID update for this week. Jasmine, what are our local quick hits? Okay, so I have two local government-related quick hits. So one... Um, in Lexington, the Lexington City Council voted 9-6 to six to move their ordinance banning no-knock warrants forward. So the first reading of that will be Thursday. So we've, we've talked about what's going on in Lexington with no-knocks a little bit lately. So there's an update yeah, that story. That, that's a big deal because that wasn't guaranteed at the time. And right. there were like some very big name people in Lexington that did not necessarily want this bill to move forward. And it was a lot of really hard work from the mm-hmm. folks in Lexington to get that done. So that's great news. Yep. And... Um, Local government quick hit number two. Um, we haven't, we, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, I think, but um, the Louisville Metro Council finally passed the buffer zone ordinance, right. which is an ordinance that provides like a 10 feet safety zone at healthcare facilities. And this, you know, was an issue because of um, the people outside the abortion clinic in Louisville. Um, and that buffer zone passed, but a federal lawsuit has been filed saying that the ordinance is unconstitutional. Um, so maybe this is something, you know, it, it kind of depends on what comes up in the summer, but maybe this is something I'll talk more about um, as the lawsuit moves along. Right. But I wanted to note that. Yeah, I think we talked about this the week that you were gone. I think I might have talked about it with Emily. Um, but yeah, I, you know. Everybody who listens to the show probably knows our story. And I would say like walking past those people was the most harrowing part mm-hmm. about going into EMW. And I think it's great that the safety ordinance passed. I hope they don't stay the, the law or the ordinance, but it is. And hopefully it, it, it's a good resolution. So Yeah, I knew that you talked about it, but I wanted to know that some religious organizations filed a federal lawsuit against it. This well, week. that's unsurprising, but disappointing, I guess is the best way to put that. All right, Jasmine, thanks for that. Let's get to our interview with Chris Hartman. 
Chris Hartman is the director of Kentucky's Fairness Campaign, the largest LGBTQ rights group in Kentucky. While he's been in this role since at least 2012, Mr. Hartman previously was Congressman Yarmouth's campaign press secretary. June, of course, is Pride Month, and the Fairness Movement in Kentucky has struck several victories since the last time we spoke to Mr. Hartman, which has been a couple years at this point. So, Chris Hartman, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, we're both very we're excited to have you as well. So, yeah, the last time when we spoke, you, you gave us these really nice pins, which I see you're wearing one now, uh, but it showed all the cities with fairness ordinances, and at the time there were nine. Now there's 21. So so tell us the story about how the fairness movement found so much success over these past two years. It's true. I've got to add stars to, to this button. Um, you know, there were a lot of factors, I think, uh, one of them being that it's time, uh, that sort of we've hit a critical mass, a tipping point, if you will, that now these ordinances are getting easier and easier and easier to pass in many communities. Now, not all communities, and I'm sure that we can talk about that a little bit, but one of the big things that led to um, some of our massive success in the last two years, uh, not all of them, but a vast majority of the new fairness ordinances that have been passed, you know, we just, as you said, we've more than doubled where we were two years ago. And a lot of that is progress in Northern Kentucky. And that was the city of Covington actually issuing an official challenge to all of the cities and the communities around them. Uh, to say, look, we did ours nearly 20 years ago in 2003. When is the rest of Northern Kentucky going to catch up? And uh, right afterwards, Dayton uh, was the first one and in, in sort of that string up there to start passing and uh, Highland Heights and um, Crescent Springs and Cold Spring. And, you, you know, it's been sort of endless Bellevue up there. Uh, and I think that direct challenge, um, you know, I can't overstate its importance. Yeah, Northern Kentucky was actually going to be a whole question, but we don't need to ask it now because you already told us what the secret was up there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, besides Northern Kentucky, uh, there's been other parts of the mm-hmm. state that have, uh, are, you know, bigger cities that kind of have struggled to get a, a fairness ordinance passed. And we don't have one in, in some of the bigger cities like Bowling Green, Owensboro, mm-hmm. Pikeville, right. et cetera. Uh, and that's a little surprising, maybe. Uh, so how is the campaign progressing in different parts of the state? And what are some of the next targets you I have? I wish I could tell you that we're going to pass in Bowling Green, you know, next week, tomorrow, next month. It's just not the case. You all know that this all comes down to you have to convince a couple of change makers. You either need to convince a mayor, you need to convince a couple of city commissioners, city council members. And if you just can't quite get that last vote in Bowling Green, we have just been teetering on that last vote that we need. We've got two out of three votes that we need. Very similar thing going on in Owensboro and in Davis County, where just just about a month ago, many of the major corporations that are located in Owensboro took out a full page ad in the Messenger Inquirer uh, calling on the city that if it's going to be competitive in the current market, which is really focused on diversity and inclusion that they've got to pass a fairness ordinance. Um, And in Bowling Green, you know, I I just, I wish that I could tell you when we're going to get there, we keep getting two votes, two votes, two votes. Uh, You know, we got a different mayor now, but it still just doesn't look like the power structure there. It finds the fairness ordinance to be palatable, even though we've got a massive grassroots movement of of support there. Yeah. And and that is certainly disappointing just because uh, I would say Bowling Green is one of the most progressive spots in the whole state. And that's been Mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to watch happen. Know a lot of good people down there that have been fighting this fight for a long time. Uh, hopefully, they're successful soon. Uh, so there are uh, a few cities across the state since the last time we talked that have enacted these partial fairness ordinances. 
And, you know, some of those, I think it's like in housing. In some places, it's like housing and public accommodations. So tell us about the thought behind those and whether you think they're a meaningful part of the strategy to bring fairness to Kentucky cities across the state. Well, I, I want to see protections wherever we can get them. Um, you know, essentially, Cynthia has added uh, protections for LGBTQ folks across the board. Uh, it's it's not a full fairness ordinance because it does not include employment protections. The structure there said that leadership structure said, you know, now that the Supreme Court has ruled in the Bostock case from 2020 that extended employment protections all across America based on sex protections, uh, you know, that they didn't feel um, it necessary to include it. You know, the fairness campaign has taken a strong position that uh, we want you to pass a full fairness ordinance if you're going to pass a fairness ordinance, but we want protections, period. How mm-hmm. are you going to get them? Uh, and so uh, Cynthiana has uh, housing and public accommodations. Uh, and then Ashland, uh, quite a while ago, passed housing protections. I mean, I think that was a vestige of 2013. Wow. So Ashland's had a third of a fairness ordinance for mm-hmm. quite a while. But public accommodations is the key. That is what is really not going to be covered by the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, housing is probably going to end up being covered. We know employment is. But there aren't any public uh, accommodations protections based on sex in federal um, or state law unless it's a publicly funded entity. Mm-hmm. So while the, the movement to get fairness ordinances in cities has seen quite a bit of success, especially since we last talked to you, on the state level, progress has still been really difficult. And after the major losses by Democrats in the 2020 election, the number of co-sponsors dropped from 24 to 16. Mm-hmm. But this year's edition of the Fairness Bill did include a Republican co-sponsor. Do you think that the Kentucky General Assembly will pass a statewide fairness law anytime soon? <laughs> oh, I wish. You know, we've got a number of Republicans now that are in support of fairness. I, you know what the true victory is, that we have not passed any of these virulent anti-LGBTQ laws. The right. ones targeting mm-hmm. trans youth, the ones targeting bathroom access. You know, Tennessee has passed at least four anti-LGBTQ laws, including the trans athlete ban, which West Virginia has also passed. You know, all of our neighbors are moving on these these anti-LGBTQ initiatives, and we have successfully staved all of them off uh, for the past several years. Do I think that I'm going to get the political will in the Kentucky (laughs) House or, heavens forbid, the Kentucky Senate (laughs) to, to bring a bill like statewide fairness or the conversion therapy ban to the floor? You know, I don't know. I I think it's more likely that we'll get some committee movement on a bill at a point in time if a bill is in the right committee. You know, the conversion therapy ban uh, went from originally sort of health and family services to now it's it's in licensing and occupations, which is a different committee with a much different vote count in there. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that we could have the votes to pass a bill like that in a committee. I don't I don't believe that the leadership is going to allow one of those onto the floor anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned the conversion therapy ban, so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next. And with that bill being stalled in the legislature, you know, despite having 28 total sponsors and six Republican co-sponsors, we have seen that movement follow the path set out by the fairness movement. And now Louisville, Lexington, Covington, um, they've all enacted bans on the practice. So, you know, what lessons from the fairness movement do you think that the movement to ban conversion therapy could help. Yeah, we're following a, a similar model in in many ways, and I got to give Covington their love uh, in this respect. Covington was first, first yeah, uh, and then uh, Louisville passed second. 
And then Lexington just very recently unanimously passed the conversion therapy ban. Um, and that's a conversation that we started having with city leaders to say, look, if, if this isn't going to get movement at the statewide level, why don't we go ahead and just like we've done the fairness ordinances, let's start looking at municipal ordinances to ban the therapy. Uh, Cincinnati was the first in the nation to do it. And now there are you know scores of cities across mm -hmm. America and 21 states that have banned the practice. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think that we're going to see uh, start looking in some more northern Kentucky cities, maybe Highland Heights, where NKU is, see if they will be open to passing the conversion therapy ban. And, and once again, bringing that conversation to where state legislators live so that they really have to confront the issues in a very local way, talk to people on the ground because the, the city's having a conversation and then ultimately hope that that transfers up or, you know, translates to the Kentucky General Assembly soon. Sure. My follow-up question is, you know, what do those conversations look like outside of, you know, Northern Kentucky, which um, is seeing some movement on these issues and maybe becoming a little more progressive? What do those conversations look like in maybe places like Eastern Kentucky? Well, uh, so let me let me show. We we've been uh, spending a lot of time in Eastern Kentucky lately, and I've got a, a meeting in Harlan coming up soon. Um, we've been pursuing a fairness ordinance in Augusta, which is still sort of northern Kentucky, mm -hmm. but uh, very different from the, the sort of Cincinnati, Covington yeah, suburbs. Yeah, definitely. Home of George Clooney, right? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, well, G George Clooney uh, went to high school in Augusta. Yes, the, the city council meets at the Clooney Center. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, many Clooney connections in Augusta. Uh, and they've already voted. So they've already made a five to one vote on a first reading of a fairness ordinance. But the conversation there is dramatically different. Um, when I was invited by uh, Council Member Dana Bach uh, maybe about a month ago to come to City Hall or to come to the Clooney Center, you know, I'd say there were about 50 opponents that had uh, shown up and maybe 10 supporters um, at that point. And the, the things I was hearing are very similar to the things that I've heard all across the state for the past 12 years that I've been doing this, mm -hmm. you know, um, from bestiality to, you know, basically you're, you're the devil in a blue suit bringing sin into town. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's hard and very unfortunate. And, and that, that even just hearing that conversation is very harmful to especially many LGBTQ youth. But I'll admit, too, is that that also galvanizes people to get involved and to take a stand. And so two nights ago, um, I swung back up to Augusta because uh, Richard Nelson of the Commonwealth Policy Center, which sort of makes a living following me around the state <laughs> to try to shut down fairness ordinances. He was having a town hall at uh, Augusta Baptist Church and a grassroots movement of uh, local supporters decided to have a protest. It was beautiful and vibrant. Um, and they peacefully, um, you know, chant it uh, throughout the duration of the town hall. You know, it inspires me to see the movement in the places where it's not easy, where there is still sacrifice and still fear to stand up, but, but that people are unafraid. And, uh, you know, that's what I see in Kentuckians when we work all across the Commonwealth. Sure. Yeah, taking like maybe one step up uh, or, or away from like the nitty gritty details and just thinking about like, the way in which this movement has changed since, well, I mean, since you've been involved professionally, but, you know, throughout your adulthood or my adulthood, I'm just thinking about how much different the movement for like LGBTQ liberation and equality is, is so much different than it was 10, 15 years it's ago. It's a rainbow on everything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's pretty wild. And I mean, I, I, I remember like one of the first 
political issues I really had any sort of thoughts about was when gay marriage was like a major issue here in Kentucky in 2004. And really, for me as a teenager, seeing like the way that a lot of people that I had trusted thought about that issue really made me think maybe I should think differently about a lot of things. Uh, And and just thinking about how uh, this fight has evolved over time, uh, you know, how are how how has how have things changed, uh, you know, since (laughs) since you started to now? I mean, in some ways, they kind of haven't. Like you just mentioned, yeah. like the fight up in Augusta is very much the same. But in which, in what ways is it the I mean, same? You can trace a lot of it with the marriage conversation that you bring up. Uh, you know, we lost by 75 percent in 2004 here in Kentucky. And many of the state lawmakers who are our allies today voted against the marriage amendment in 2004. You know, everybody's on a journey, <laughs> just like these companies are on a journey that, you know, Nabisco wasn't releasing Pride crackers <laughs> years, even five years ago. You know, one thing that I really saw, ha- you know, a couple things were happening around the same time. You know, marriage equality becoming the law of the land through the Supreme Court, which created the knee-jerk reaction that has now been sort of the blowback that we're getting in state legislatures, the anti-trans laws, the pasture protection acts, uh, adopt anti-adoption bills. All of these have been sort of a reaction to the progress that the Supreme Court opened up with marriage. But then right after that, the, the next year is the terrible tragedy in Orlando, the Pulse nightclub uh, massacre. And that is the year that I feel like I saw allyship at pride festivals because it happened in June. Um, I, I mean, I felt like the attendance and, and the showing of support here in Kentuckiana Pride was double what it had been before, that suddenly everyone was compelled to be a visible ally um, and to speak out and to show support. Um, and I hate that um, it was some something so tragic, uh, loss of life, gun violence, you know, so many things to unpack there. But the reality is that that's when I saw a turn um, in broad, almost universal support, where it is the outlier now during Pride Month, which, you know, I want... I want this to continue beyond Pride Month. It's not enough to put a rain, but but the visibility is important. Um, and that's when I really started seeing things sort of turn around. And, you know, I could have never imagined as a 17-year-old walking into a Target and seeing a Pride display mm-hmm. or going and, and buying a Pepsi and it's in a rainbow packaging. <laughs> the visibility actually does matter, even though I can't say that I'm down with the corporatization of Pride <laughs> in general. But unpacking all of this to say that the allyship is important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but you know, as we've mentioned, uh, you know, we still have a long way to go. Uh, and I, I am wondering, you know, as a lot of you, you mentioned, it kind of is the default where, I mean, people are supportive of uh, LGBTQ equality and liberation. But but if people want to get more involved in this issue, uh, what options do they have to do that? How, they can, how can they support fairness in their city or town? Uh, and if they already live in a city or, or uh, you know, town or, or even county, Woodford yeah. County counts, yeah. uh, you know, if they already live in a place that has a fairness ordinance, how can they get involved in other ways in this movement? Well, always the statewide movement uh, is hungry for support. Uh, and of course, the state legislature comes in every January and typically legislates through March or through some of April. Um, and so, you know, joining with fairness with ACLU, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, Planned Parenthood, all of our progressive ally organizations to stay on top of the legislation that we are fighting and actually sending that message to their representatives. And, and folks can do that right now. Uh, we've got a whole litany of issues that are hot topics that we want legislators to know where Kentuckians stand at fairness.org slash reps, R-E-P-S, fairness.org slash reps. Um, and that talks about 
um, you know, from, from protecting trans youth to the statewide fairness law to banning conversion therapy to the adoption issue, which has become such a hot topic now mm-hmm. with Governor Bashir's administration refusing to give Sunrise Baptist Children's Homes a carve out in a state contract so that they can continue to discriminate against LGBTQ families. You know, these are the things that legislators are going to be considering. Uh, come out to Pride. There are prides all over the place. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll be releasing a list of all the prides that I know about. Um, during non-pandemic times, we've got like 25 pride festivals all across the state now. I'd say there are going to be about half of them this year, but we'll probably be back up to full speed uh, next year. And you can always volunteer with Fairness. You can volunteer with Fairness at those prides or volunteer with us at the Kentucky State Fair, where we sign up supporters from all across the state. And sometimes I get dragged off in here. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Chris Hartman, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Happy Pride. Happy to be here. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at 4 slash newsletters. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Deadcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.